after the wonderful time of music, the singing, and of course the ordinance of believers' baptism, which so beautifully pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the death of those who have repented of sin to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. It is a wonderful privilege for me to be the Lord's messenger. I would invite you to go ahead and be turning in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm bringing a message that I would not normally or typically bring as a guest preacher, except for the fact that your dear pastor asked if I would address this issue because of the Southern Baptist Convention visiting your fair state uh, down in the city of New Orleans later this week. And so from 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to read beginning in verse 9, and I'll label the message, Women in Ministry and the Authority of Scripture. Women in Ministry and the Authority of Scripture. Of Scripture, It is my custom to ask, if you're able and willing to do so, to stand to your feet to honor the public reading of God's inspired, infallible, and errant, absolutely authoritative, and completely sufficient word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 9. Likewise, now he's just given some instructions to godly men. And for the ladies to not be left out, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, Likewise... I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And I pray God would bless the reading of His perfect word as we take our seats to consider what God says about women in ministry and how this doctrinal subject impacts our view of the authority of Scripture. I'm blessed to have my wife Andrea and two of our four children with us today. And next month we will celebrate, by God's grace, 28 years of marriage not long after we were married, a couple in our church who were dog breeders, they gave us a very expensive puppy. That puppy was a chow breed. And if you're familiar with chows, then when they get their summer trim, they get groomed for the summer, they often look like a small lion. It reminds me of the story of the mischievous little boy always kind of getting in trouble came in one day from the front yard and he said, Mama, there's a lion out in the front yard. She knew there were no lions in that 
uh, neighborhood. And she said, son, you're not telling the truth. He said, no, mama, I promise. I just saw a lion out in the front yard. And she said, you get to your room and you get on your knees and you talk to God and repent for lying. A few moments later, he came back down and she said, what did God tell you? He said, God told me not to worry about it. First time he saw that dog, he thought it was a lion too. Well, we live in a day that blurs the lines of distinction. Not between dogs and lions, but between men and women. And in the larger cultural context, and American evangelicalism is not left unscathed, many deny that such distinctions even exist. And worse yet, many of them, like the mischievous little boy, invoke the name of God and say that God agrees with them. If you watch the evening news or scroll through your favorite social media feed, you see we've gone from men in the women's restrooms to males stealing trophies and titles from well-deserving female athletes to now women with male body parts and men who become pregnant. Several years ago, an article in the New York Times focused on a transgender couple that gave birth to a little girl. The writer said that the occasion was groundbreaking because a pregnant man had given birth. And she, she chronicled all the last six or seven months of that pregnancy because of the stated desire, and I quote here, to show how similar this transgender pregnancy was to other couples who have had children, end quote. But you're probably already ahead of me if you have two brain cells. The pregnant man in the story isn't a man at all. She is a biological woman who claims to be a man. And the baby's father, claiming to be the mother, is a biological man who isn't sure what he is. The bottom line, a man and a woman had a romantic relationship. A child was conceived, and after nine months of gestation, that child was born. I'm not trying to be oversimplified this morning, but that's not just similar to other pregnancies. That's how everybody except Adam and Eve and Jesus got on the earth. But as sad as these trends are, there's a growing trend in the American church that I might call theological transgenderism. By that I mean a trend to blur the lines of gender distinctions and in some cases to deny that those distinctions exist at all. Like its cultural and physiological counterpart, theological transgenderism seeks to ignore the God-given assignment and role responsibility that God gave at birth. Specifically in this theological movement, women say, I don't care what assignment God has given to me in the creation and in the scripture. I want to do what God has called a man to do and no one will tell me otherwise. Now, while advocates of physical transgenderism take a scalpel to and thereby mutilate the physical body, their theological counterparts take a scalpel to and mutilate the Word of God, turning it into Swiss cheese 
slicing and dicing it, cutting away anything that doesn't match their self-assigned, self-affirming, self-appointed role. Now this broader debate within our culture and American evangelicalism has not left our own denomination of churches untouched. I believe the Southern Baptist Convention is overwhelmingly in favor of a male-only pastorate, which is theologically called complementarianism, but there is still a raging debate within our convention of churches as to exactly how that is to be fleshed out. You may notice on the screen from our own Baptist Faith and Message, which is the doctrinal position of our convention, of my local church and of this local church, speaking of the church... Our affirmation of faith says its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. If you'll bear with the introduction a few more moments, two years ago in our Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, a motion was made to disfellowship the Saddleback Church of California founded by noted pastor Rick Warren because they had publicly ordained several women to the pastorate. It's a practice they have since that time increased or as we often say they've doubled down. In February of this year they were removed from the Southern Baptist Convention a process that took an amazing 20 months of debate and was not nearly unanimous and in two days they will marshal their forces to your fair state to appeal their removal now while I believe that they will lose that appeal it will once again be far from unanimous now in the text that is set before us today we read one of several Bible passages dealing with the role of women in ministry and my prayer my responsibility my desire is that God by his spirit would give us clarity and insight into this issue not drawn from from Twitter not even drawn from the Baptist faith and message but drawn from the book that holds the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints it is in that context that today's message is not about Rick Warren, it's not about Saddleback, and it's not about the Southern Baptist Convention. God has been doing a very fine job long before the SBC ever came along. This message is not even exclusively about the role of women in ministry, but I want to speak to you about the authority of Scripture and how the attacks on this doctrine are ultimately an attack against scriptural authority. Now to do that, I'm just going to give you a lesson about women in ministry. Note with me first of all what I will label the reminder to these ladies. The Holy Spirit moves on the hand of the Apostle Paul to write to his young protege in the pastorate, Brother Timothy, and he says, Timothy, God wanted me to write you this letter, you can read in chapter 3, to tell you how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of truth. This is what we would call a pastoral epistle. And in that context, the Holy Spirit says, Paul, remind Timothy to tell the men some things to remember. And don't leave the ladies out. 
give them a likewise, starting in verse 9. There are three reminders in this text for all of our ladies of all ages here this morning. Number one, there is a reminder about proper clothing. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more controversial subject to address even in a Baptist church. When I scroll through my Facebook feed, especially during the summer months, I feel like I have been beset by pornographic invitations that someone is trying to spam my Facebook account only to discover that it's a deacon's wife. And the Word of God still says, look at it in verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. The word discreetly means secretively. That there ought to be some things after a godly woman gets dressed to go out into public that she still has some secrets. Some things that are not on display for the world to see. How many of you know with no apology to the famous catalog, Victoria has no more secrets? Now a lot could be said about this issue in our day, but I want to limit our discussion to a rather specific point of application that bears upon today's subject. Right off the bat, the Holy Spirit acknowledges that men and women are different. And those differences are more than the obvious physical and anatomical differences. While men should certainly dress modestly and not seek to inflame lust of women, you will not find a comparable verse of Scripture anywhere in the Bible that commands men to cover up so that women will not lust after them. In Matthew's Gospel, when our Lord brought an even broader and greater application to the commandment against adultery, you remember what he said. He said, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery against her in his heart. When you find mandates in the scripture for men to dress modestly, it is usually dealing with men who want to be flashy and impressive, not fleshly and provocative. I've counseled a lot of married couples in my ministry where the adultery began on the internet. The fornication began on a cell phone. I've still never had a woman sit in my office and say, Pastor, my adultery began when I saw that other man's forearms if he had only worn long sleeve shirts. This reminder about proper clothing is a divine acknowledgement that there is a difference between men and women. And by the way, thank God for that. Some of you ladies perhaps are not always satisfied with your husband because you wish he would tell long detailed stories, love shopping all day Saturday at Hobby Lobby, and watch the Lifetime Network. Do you know what you call a man like that? A woman. <laughs> I urge you today, don't buy into the idea of toxic masculinity. 
As surely as a woman should act like a woman, a man should act like a man. And our culture constantly wants men to get in touch with their feminine side. May God raise up a generation of men who know how to get in touch with their masculine side. I stopped by today to say that a godly man will like women and in God's timing will usually like and love one in particular. He will like women but he will not be like a woman. He'll not be a theological sissy who buys paisley pants at the gap or carries a women's NIV study Bible. This reminder about proper clothing says among other things God has made men and women differently. There's a reminder not only about proper clothing, but about pure conduct. Look now at verse 10. But rather by means of good works. He is juxtaposing this with the braided hair and the costly jewelry. And he says that women should give more attention to the internal than to the external. And certainly that mandate would be rightly applied to men as well. The question should be, what is it that people think of, men and women alike, when they see you? Or more importantly, what is it that you want them to think? Do you want them to think what a sharp-looking tie, what a great-looking suit, what a wonderful hairdo, Brother Lewis? <laughs> or do you want them to say, there goes a woman of God. What a role model as a Christian mother. What an example as a godly husband and father. And so I ask you in light of this, how much time do you spend each day in the morning getting ready internally compared to how much time you spend getting ready externally? Now I think if we're honest, we spend time getting ready physically because we know there are some things naturally about us that would not be very flattering, perhaps even offensive to an onlooking world if we didn't do something to deal with the mess we wake up to in the mirror every morning. You know, that's true spiritually as well. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And every morning, I ought to spend some time with the Lord because I know that if I don't, I'm going to go out and I'm going to present something that does not honor my King. I'm going to demonstrate something that is not consistent with making a claim to godliness. There is for the women and for the men a reminder in this text about proper clothing, about pure conduct. There's a reminder also about practical consistency. Look again in verse 10. I hope you've got your Bible or your Bible app open. Verse 10. But rather by means of good works, as is proper. Would you say the word proper? Your translation may render it as is fitting for women making a claim to godliness. Now this word proper is a very interesting word. It is drawn, as we would say it, from the world of fashion. This is a wardrobe word. Fitting. Proper. 
goes together. It matches. I believe that Paul is having a little bit of a play on the admonition related to clothing and external versus internal appearance. And he says, when you get dressed spiritually, it ought to match what's going on physically and vice versa. And it ought to go together. For example, most of the ladies in this room probably would not normally put on a burgundy skirt and a red blouse. You would probably say those just don't necessarily go together and I really hope I have not just described someone's outfit this morning. I'm sure it works for you. I'm confident those those are your colors, girl. We would not typically, ladies, think to wear a polka dotted scarf with a chevron print dress. We would typically say those things just don't go together. This word not only references things that just don't belong in the same field, but they don't literally fit. That if you're a size 12, a size 8 won't do. If you're a size 8, a 12 won't fit. And the Word of God says here that there are some actions that simply don't fit. They don't match. They don't go together with people who make a claim to godliness. Have you ever experienced something like that? I hear what you're saying, but I see what you're doing, and the two don't match. In the context of this admonition to God's women, I want to say very clearly that a bossy, domineering attitude does not fit a woman making a claim to godliness. An immodest outfit doesn't fit a claim to godliness. A filthy mouth, and by the way, I hope you're tracking, so much of this applies to the man as well. A filthy mouth doesn't fit a claim to godliness. And a domineering position of authority over your church or over your husband does not fit a woman making a claim to godliness. These first two verses of our text very simply remind us, men and women alike, there are ways that you can act and things that you can do that are not consistent with spiritual maturity. This opening section again compares the external appearance to the disposition toward God And in the process, the Holy Spirit necessarily indicates there are two distinct genders and there are differences between the two. And that's where the fur begins to be messed up. Because we see not only the reminder to these ladies, but the restriction on their leadership. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the fur flies and the feathers get ruffled. Some would say there are no restrictions because they read into this and they argue about what it means that Paul would not allow a woman to teach or have authority. Before I dissect the text, I want to make a very obvious and simple, I think, self-apparent statement. This prohibition in the text means something. It doesn't mean nothing. So while some may argue as to what it specifically prohibits, it 
it means there is necessarily a distinction. There's a restriction on the leadership of women in the Lord's church. Now as we go through verse 11, I want you to notice first there's a, there's a restriction regarding submission. Submission. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now submission involves a voluntary yielding of oneself. Submission by definition cannot be forced or coerced. I've heard people say before as a figure of speech, they, they were forced into submission. That's a contradiction of terms. You cannot be forced into submission. You can be forced into compliance, but you cannot be forced into submission. Listen very, very carefully. In the home and in the church, submission is not as much something that is required, although it is. But it is something that the godly, mature woman of God gladly, joyfully, willfully gives. This past week, one of our recent Southern Baptist Convention presidents wrote an article addressing this issue that faces our beloved convention. And one of the lines which he himself not only tweeted but made tweet a ball within the article itself, warns us that we should be cautious for the following reasons. He writes, One of my concerns is this, in this conversation is that we are alienating firmly complementarian, that is biblically faithful women, faithful sisters who are not trying to be pastors but are feeling less inclined to serve because we have turned them into a battleground. End quote. Now, aside from the fact that we have done no such thing, I don't think you heard me. Aside from the fact we have done no such thing, no biblically faithful woman or biblically faithful man has ever or ever will be alienated from faithful Christian service by the preaching of sound doctrine. There is a word here about submission. There's a restriction here also regarding Scripture. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The issue in this text is the proclamation of Scripture to men from a woman serving in a position of authority. And by the way, it must be clearly stated the preaching of Scripture is by definition not only an act of spiritual authority, it is the act of spiritual authority. I have no more authority over my congregation than when I'm standing in the very center of the Word of God. The issue here is the proclamation of Scripture by a woman to men. To be clear, it does not hinder a woman from teaching children or youth. It doesn't prevent her from sharing a devotional word, leading in the service, as so many of our sisters have done this morning. It doesn't involve or prohibit sharing a word of testimony that is biblically based. What a, what a wonderful testimony we saw from our sister by way of our baptism video. 
It does not preclude sharing music in a service or serving on a committee. And it certainly does not prohibit women teaching women. In fact, with your Bible open, I want you to turn over a couple of books to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. And I want you to look with me in chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Just two books to the right. Titus chapter 2, if you've got it, say, I've got it. Verse 3, older women, let me interrupt the text. The Apostle Paul did not quantify what older women was. So ladies, I'll leave that for your own discernment. If you think he's talking to you here, God told you. I didn't say that, but verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage who? The younger women. To love their husband. Notice, by the way, how domestic this instruction is. How to love their husbands. How to love their children. To be sensible, pure. Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Now look at this last phrase. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. As you turn back to our First Timothy text, Ironically, critics of the position that we hold that I'm teaching this morning tell us that our position hinders the gospel. That our position turns people away from the church and from the Lord. But the, the, the text of God's Word says exactly the opposite. That when men are functioning as God called men and women are functioning as God called women, the Word of God is not dishonored. I am regularly rebuked in our own community because of the precision of the doctrine we teach in our pulpit. We've had members come and go because they say that because of our doctrinal positions, we're not seeing the, the type of numerical growth that we could otherwise see. With all due respect, Doctrinal precision may indeed and most likely will hinder pragmatic growth and statistical results. But the proclamation of sound doctrine never hinders biblical evangelism. Never. There is a restriction here regarding submission, regarding Scripture, finally regarding silence. This is where I'm going to ask our beloved pastor to go start my rental car, pull it to the portico. Look at the last phrase in verse 12. But I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. Now again, this does not say that a woman can't speak in church. What it's talking about is in the context of teaching, preaching the Word of God in a necessarily and by definition authoritative way with men in the congregation. Now when you look at the simple meaning of the text, what you theologians would understand as the doctrine of perspicuity, what that simply means is the plain things are the main things, the main things are the plain things, and God's Word is not God's secret code book. 
It's his divine revelation of himself and his ways to his people. The simple reading of the text is easy to understand. It's not that we don't understand what this says. It's that in our modern minds we don't agree with it. And therein lies the problem. And therein we come to the real debate about submitting to the authority of Scripture. I had not planned to share this story, and oftentimes that doesn't serve me well in the pulpit. But when I think about doctrines like this one, I can't help but think back to when we were perhaps just starting middle school. Maybe you called it junior high. It's about that time we began to be a little bit embarrassed about our parents. We wanted our friends to think maybe we didn't even have a mom or a dad. Maybe they could drop us off three blocks away from the school. Mom didn't always get dressed to go drop us off at school. I'm talking bathrobe curlers in her hair. Dad didn't drive the nicest, sharpest sports car. Now, my parents didn't do this, but maybe your dad would go to the PTA meeting with his pants jacked up so high he was about to get deodorant stains on his belt loops. I don't know what they did that might have embarrassed you. But later in life, as you mature, especially when you have children of your own, and you become that antiquated, outdated dinosaur parent, that's when you look back and you say, you know what? I now think the reason Daddy didn't drive that shiny sports car, he was trying to keep food on the table and shoes on my feet and a roof over my head. And things that used to embarrass me about my father's ways, now that I've matured and grown, I'm grateful for them. And I believe that for a lot of God's people, genuine born-again believers, we have been so immersed in and indoctrinated by a culture that literally, biologically can no longer even tell the difference between a man and a woman. And if we're not careful, we can be a bit ashamed of our daddy's outdated views. But brothers and sisters, we do not have the privilege as blood-bought saints of God to pick and choose which parts of the Scripture we are going to believe. Recently I was asked, Pastor, why do you think this prohibition is here? Why did God do this? And in our final point, I'm going to show you some very specific theological reasons. I'm not going to make it up. I'm going to show you what the Holy Spirit said. But there's one that's not really in this text, but I believe it's in the whole counsel of God. One reason God might have put this prohibition here is because, watch this carefully, God has always, since the dawn of human history, required a token of His ownership and of His lordship. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You can eat of the fruit of any of these trees except that one. Because when you obey me in the one, you're acknowledging this whole place belongs to me. You can grow all of the crops and I will bless them, but the first fruits belong to me. I will increase your wealth. 
but the first of it belongs to me. Israel, when you cross the Jordan River, I'm going to bless you with houses you didn't build and wells you didn't dig, vineyards that you didn't plant. I'm going to bless you in so many ways. But now the first city that you come to across the Jordan, the city of Jericho, don't take any of that. That belongs to me. And when you honor me in the one thing, you acknowledge I'm Lord over all of it. And it just might be. That one reason God has some restrictions over how His church is to function is to remind us that this church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a restriction on their leadership. The reminder to these ladies, thirdly and finally, the reason for this limitation. Why exactly does the Holy Spirit place this complementarian limit on the role of women. Well, some would suggest that it was societal, that, that Paul was familiar with the Ephesian culture where Timothy was serving. Oh, and he knew that women would not be respected. Many were considered as chattel property. Some say it was societal that Paul said, Timothy, if you, if you let a woman get in the pulpit, she won't be respected by the culture. But that's not what the text says. Others say it was not societal, it was specific. The idea here is that Paul, having served for three years in the city of Ephesus, might have had a couple of ladies in mind. Timothy, if you let Sister Bertha and Sister Beulah get in charge, you're going to have trouble. Most pastors are trying to fight back and amen this morning because you've got Bertha and Beulah and her sisters in your church. But that's not what he says. In fact, if you'll look in your Bible, every major Bible translation that I have studied, read the first word with me that is found in verse 13. What's the first word of verse 13, church? Four. We'd say because... Here's the reason. Well, pastor, don't I have the freedom to disagree with your reason? Oh, you've got all the freedom in the world to disagree with my reason. We've got no freedom in the world to disagree with the reason that God gave. Do you see this intersection with the authority of Scripture? Now, what is the reason for this limitation? Number one, the decree from our God. 4, verse 13 it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. Now I want you to notice something with me very, very carefully. The first reason that is given goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. You say, why is that important? Because in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we get a perfect picture of God's original divine order and divine creation. Sin did not enter into the world until Genesis chapter 3, what we would call the fall into sin. So the first reason that God gives for male leadership, in this case in the church, we also see that in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, male leadership in the home. The first reason he gives here is a pre-fall, pre-sin, Genesis 1 and 2 reason. What that should mean to us today, if you're a thinking Bible student, 
is that since God's divine order before sin entered the world included male leadership, then that was not reversed by Calvary. That has not been changed by the new covenant. Some suggest that this was just Paul's opinion. But Paul has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to give these instructions. I'll call your attention to the screen. I want you to notice this tweet from four years ago from noted former Southern Baptist Beth Moore. She was debating a Southern Baptist professor named Denny Burke. And she says here, somewhere along the way, Denny, we have to reckon with the fact that we, myself included, went too far. She's talking about the role of women in the church. We put limitations on women that exceeded what Christ demonstrated. We did it instead of wrestling with the, what's the next word? Wrestling with the what? Talk to me. Wrestling with the what? Tension between the Gospels and the Epistles. We're watching a backlash. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear much else that I say today, listen carefully. There is no tension between the teachings of Jesus Christ and the God-inspired writings of the Apostle Paul. By the way, this addresses those who say, well, we have a woman preaching, but she's under the authority of the male pastor. That just means that in that case, both of you are out from under God's authority. The decree from our God. Two final things. Note with me in verse 14, the disobedience in the garden. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now this deals with the timing of their sin, the chronological order, and the reasons for it. Eve acted as Satan appealed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. Adam sinned, listen dear husband, Adam sinned as he followed his wife's lead. What I'm about to say will be as politically correct as anything you will hear in any pulpit. But if you want confusion and chaos in a home, in a church, or in a convention of churches, let it be led out of emotional manipulation. In the absence of God-called men who will simply stand up and say, I'm sorry about the tears. I'm sorry about the emotion. I'm sorry about the hurt, but none of that has anything to do with what God has told us to do or not to do. There is, in fact, a growing mantra in the evangelical world, including our own denomination, that abuse, I'm talking about physical, sexual abuse, is directly tied to male leadership in the church. You will hear this criticized with words and accusations like, well, of course that's what they thought. That committee is all a bunch of men. Of course the deacons felt that way. They're all men. You can't get a right decision unless there are an equal number of women in the room. Now sit up straight and we're just about finished. The notion that a group of God-called, spirit-filled, 
Bible-based, church-approved men cannot get alone with God and get a word for God's people is a lie as old as the Garden of Eden. It's an attack on God's divine order and it's as woke as a rooster crowing at 5.30 in the morning. The disobedience in the garden. The decree from our God, verse 15, tells us finally the differences in the genders. But women will be preserved, your text may say, saved, and this is not speaking of spiritual salvation. This is not talking about a Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved kind of salvation. It's talking about the fulfillment. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and in sanctity with self-restraint. Now there's a lot that could be said about the differences in men and women that are implicit and explicit in this text. But I'll make one closing comment. While it is not God's plan for every individual woman to bear children, my wife and I struggled for years with infertility and in a room this size, some family is struggling with that today. I don't want you to think that this verse means that you're a second class citizen in God's kingdom. But it's saying that on the whole, the woman's fulfillment not only the fulfillment of her heart, but the fulfillment of God's divine design is going to be realized when she focuses her ministry on service at, in, and through her family. There was a young preacher and an old preacher that were arguing over this very point one day. And it caused somebody to write a little poem about it. You're just out of date said young Pastor Bates to one of our faithful old preachers who'd carried for years with blood, sweat, and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach submission and the oppression of women with the misogynistic doctrines of Paul. Your church is so far behind you'll never catch up with mine. We're progressing while you barely crawl. For some little while, a wee bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being now made the butt of this ridiculous cut did not dampen his sweetness and grace. So he turned to young Bates, so suave and sedate. Catch up with you? Did my ears hear you say? Son, I'd not catch you indeed if I tripled my speed. Young man, I'm not headed your way. Whether you're talking about men in ministry, women in ministry, teenagers or children in ministry to our King, may our clarion call be, we want to live in submission to the authority of Scripture. Amen. Father in heaven, as our pastor comes to lead in this time of commitment, I pray that you would give us each grace to apply the truth of this scripture to our hearts today. And we ask you, Lord, to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.